Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening and a very warm welcome to the LSE Department of Economic History Annual Epstein Lecture. This year, uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Maris Cucciarini as our Epstein Lecturer. Um, my name is Patrick Wallace. I'm one of the professors in the Department of Economic History and the current head of the department. And as such, it's my privilege to chair the lecture this year. Um, before we get to business, uh, let me just mention a few practicalities. Uh, the event will be recorded um, and will be made available online later. Obviously, we're online now, but this is on the record, so to speak. Um, and after the lecture, we will have some time for questions. Um, as you'll see in the chat, um, to put questions in, please enter them into the Q&A function and please let us know who you are, where you're coming from, what institution or what, what place you're, you're speaking to us from. I'll be bringing in the questions at the end of the lecture and presenting them to Mara in your name, so to speak. Um, so the Epstein Lecture. The annual lecture series um, is something that we're incredibly proud of and exists um, in the memory of Professor Larry Epstein, a dearly missed colleague who was one of the most exciting historians of his generation and one of the, the people that we miss most in the department. Larry was a mentor uh, to many young economic historians. I benefited personally from his support, advice, and uh, vigorous scrutiny. Uh, he was not a man to mince his words. So for me, this is a particularly important moment each year. The lectures intended to showcase the work of a rising star in economic history. Uh, the recent lecturers have included Mariam Wanamaker, Mohamed Salah, uh, Marcella Arslan, Mark Koyama, and last year, Philip Eger. So this year is the 15th uh, Epstein lecture. Um, so we're keeping on going strong. And our lecturer, Mara, comes to us from Harvard at the moment, but uh, most of the time from Bocconi University in Italy where she's an associate professor in the Department of Economics. Mara's work is really remarkable in um, the contribution it's made to our understanding of the economic history of Europe, particularly the kind of processes of development and change over the last uh, century or two. Really. Um, so after working on um, food policy and migration, there's an obligatory reference here, which I'm gonna to put to one side to the book on the economics of chocolate, which I think has to be made and then parentheses to work. Um, she moved into the questions that have brought us here, brought her here today, questions about how education, religion, and knowledge intersect with and help explain patterns of growth. These are problems that economic historians have mused on for generations. Um, in some ways, they're among the earliest of questions that motivated the first writers in economic history, but they've been remarkably hard to engage with empirically. So really hard to test, really hard to um, engage with. Mara's papers have identified new ways to identify and think about the link that exists between religion, education, and science. Been remarkably stimulating, incredibly original. And we will this evening look forward to hearing more about her thinking on this now in her lecture on a complex relationship, religiosity and science in a historical perspective. So Mara, thank you very much for being here today to be our Epstein lecturer. Over to you. Let me unmute myself. Thank you very much, Patrick, for the super nice introduction. And thanks, everybody, for uh, 
being somewhere in the world and listening to the uh, to my lecture today. So let me share the screen and my slides. I guess uh, you can see them now, right? Correct. We, we, we can see everything. Okay, so thanks again. And the topic I will talk about today is a topic um, I'm very fascinated about. And I've been working on this topic for the last few years. And what we'll do, uh, I will start by giving a brief introduction on religion in economics. And then I will discuss a couple of my works that are related to religion, human capital, and scientific knowledge. So let me start with the broad picture. Religion has played a very important role in human societies for millennia and continue to do so for several people across the globe. Indeed, still today, 86% of the world population believes in God. And religion has an importance that goes from the private to the public spheres, shaping individual beliefs and attitudes, but also social norms, the organization of societies, and even like interacting with political and military power. So given this enormous importance of religion in our lives, a large literature in economics and social sciences has studied the relationship between religiosity or religion and economic development, starting with the uh, pioneering work of Max Weber more than a century ago. However, it's in the last two decades that we have seen a flourishing literature on religion in economic history. And in particular, what this literature has uh, try to answer it's mostly two questions. The first one is what are the historical circumstances, the historical events that shaped religion and religiosity? And also how come some societies are more religious than other societies? Um, the second question is what are basically the consequences of religion and religiosity for economic development, exploring different historical settings throughout different countries and continents. Now, when approaching this topic, there are basically two main dimensions in which one can study religion. The first one is by comparing different religious affiliations. So for instance, you may say, do Protestant societies are doing better off in terms of economic development than Catholic societies. And one very fascinating paper that has actually like uh, adopted this dimension is uh, Was Weber wrong by Sasha Becker and Ludwig Bosman. So basically how are, how is the belonging to different religious affiliation affecting economic development? A second dimension in which we can study religion is religiosity. What is the religiosity? Religiosity is the intensity of religious beliefs, it's the intensity of religion. So basically how strong religion is for a certain person, for a certain society. Very interesting paper, fascinating paper that has instead taken this approach um, is the work of uh, Benabuti and Bentini. Actually, they have a couple of papers on this, looking at the relationship between the intensity of religion, religiosity, and innovation and scientific progress or attitudes towards sciences more broadly. And today, the focus of today will also be on religiosity. So today we study the intensity of religion and its relationship with scientific progress and economic development. Now, 
Having said this, how does religion affect economic development, right? And the literature has uh, identified different mechanisms through which religion or religiosity may affect development. One of them is through moral and ethics. One argument is that religious peoples have attitudes that are conducive to economic growth. Think, for instance, of trust. But another very important channel through which religion can affect economic development is through the accumulation of human capital and technological and scientific progress. This is particularly important because technological and scientific progress, especially after the first industrial revolution, is the engine of economic growth. Technology, sciences is what actually pushes economic growth. And so understanding how religion affects technological and scientific progress may have important consequences also for like a broader understanding of the growth process of society. That is why the relationship between religion and science is particularly interesting. And if we go back in history, we see that this relationship has also been particularly complex. Indeed, um, there's been periodic clashes between different religions and different types of scientific progress. Now, Roland Benavou, David Etik, and Andrea Vindigny in a recent paper provide several historical examples of these uh, clashes and moments of alignments between religion and science. But just let me just mention like a couple of them um, before moving them to the more uh, empirical analysis. Think, for instance, of the period of the scientific revolution in the 17th century. This was a period of key discoveries by prominent scientists, such as Copernicus, Galileo, Giordano Bruno, and many others. However, these discoveries were somehow clashing with the mainstream um, worldview that was embraced by the church. And so what happened is that, well, at that point, um, the church somehow and the Inquisition uh, opposed was against scientific progress. They even created an index of prohibited books and they um, started to, um, to do like trials uh, against all these defined heretical scientists. If we move to the Islamic world, something similar happened. There was um, in the 9th and 10th century, the so-called golden age. And many progresses were actually made in algebra, trigonometry, but also in chemistry and medicine. However, this uh, period of flourishing science in the Islamic world was followed by a strong opposition, especially coming from the elite, to knowledge and scientific progress more broadly. And so, if we look at history, we'll see several of these examples of sometimes religion and science being allied and many other times of clashes between the two. Um, the economics literature has tried to analyze the relationship between religion and science empirically, so basically collecting data and try to perform an empirical analysis. And still there is relatively little evidence on, the, on this interplay between religion and religiosity and technological and scientific progress. And what the literature has tried to do is to identify very often historical setting to study this question. So how, what is the relationship between religion, religiosity and technological and scientific progress? And that's gonna be also 
the what we will talk today. In particular, I will start with uh, um, one of my paper, Devotion and Development, Religiosity, Education and Scientific Progress in 19th Century France, where um, I'm going to analyze the role of religiosity for accumulation of human capital and economic progress in the context of uh, 19th century France. And then I will move to a second paper um, that is called dealing with adversity religiosity of science. And here, what we will study, it's basically the role of a shock, of a third factor, in particular of a pandemic, in affecting the evolution of religiosity and science over time. We'll move to a very different context, always in history, and talk about the United States in the period 1900-1930. Let's start with the, with the first paper. So, as I mentioned a few slides ago, religion and religiosity may affect economic development through different channels. A very prominent one is the diffusion of technological and scientific progress for the reasons that we just explained. However, when does exactly religion and religiosity hamper technological and scientific progress? And if this happens, through which mechanism does this happen? So to answer these questions, we are going to focus on France during the period of the second industrial revolution that is considered to stretch from 1870 to the first world war. Now, contrary to the first industrial revolution that happened approximately like a century earlier, uh, the first industrial revolution was also characterized by the importance of a minority of scientists, entrepreneurs, engineers that had to push the technological frontier forward, but worker skills mattered much less during this period of time. What happened with the second industrial revolution, that is the period we're going to study, is that worker skills become extremely important. I will give you more details later. Uh, that's why, the French state, as well as several other states in the rest of Europe, tried to introduce a more technical education to form a skilled labor force that could support the industrialization progress in the last part of the 19th century. Now, if we're talking about France, we're talking about Catholicism. In this period, it hasn't always been the case, I will give you more details later, but in this period, the Catholic Church had embraced a particularly anti-scientific program. And while the state was introducing technical education in primary schools, the church was pushing instead for religious content of schooling. So you can see here that there is like a clear clash in this period between religion on the one hand and these technical curriculum and industrial and scientific progress on the other hand. What are the advantages of looking at a historical setting? First of all, what I just mentioned, there was a particularly strong tension between science and religion in France in this period of time. In addition, France was not a centralized state, was a very centralized state. So we don't have problems of institutional heterogeneity. In addition, since 98% of the population was Catholic, and this is very important, we can exploit variation in the intensity of religion, in religiosity. So basically comparing places that were more or less religious to one another. And also we can look at the long-term, by uh, studying the pattern and the role of religiosity for economic development over approximately 40 years. 
To perform this analysis, I put together a very rich data set at the French department and canton level. Now, there were approximately 90, 90 departments in France and more than 2,000 cantons that you can be considered sort of metropolitan areas. Very brief overview of the findings. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna study the relationship between religiosity and industrial development during the first and the second industrial revolution. So before and after 1870. The analysis will be performed at the cross-sectional level, but also we will do like a difference in difference analysis. And what I will find is that more religious areas will start to lag behind, will have lower industrialization only after 1870, but not before. So only during the period of the second industrial revolution, but not during the first industrial revolution. And this somehow is suggesting that this pre-existing variation in religiosity started to matter only when the second industrial revolution started and when these skill intensive technologies were introduced and when worker skills became important for the process of industrialization. So establishing this fact, negative relationship between religiosity and industrial development only after 1870, but not before, the next question is why, what is the mechanism? And here, a lot of emphasis will be put on schooling and accumulation of human capital. There are two main results. The first one is that the more religious areas, so a slower adoption of the technical curriculum and instead an increase in Catholic education. This is really much in line with the historical evidence suggesting that parents, religious parents, really wanted their kids to be religiously educated. And so when this technical curriculum was being introduced in primary schools, in the more religious areas, we have a sort of backlash and even an increase in religious education as a sort of response. And then we're gonna, come, we're gonna look at the role of the type of education, religious versus secular and economic development. And what I'll show you is that Catholic education is negatively associated with industrial and economic outcomes about 10 to 15 years later. And that's exactly when these school-age children then enter the labor market. And this relationship is particularly strong in those sectors that were innovative and that required more skills. So it seems, just to sum up a bit, that religiosity is negatively associated with economic development only during the second industrial revolution. And the mechanism explaining this negative relationship is through schooling and accumulation of human capital. Now, let me give you a few details on the historical background, and then I'll tell you about the data, the empirical results, and I will conclude. So once again, what is the period we are looking at? The second industrial revolution, 1870-1914. This was a period of rapid economic growth in France and worker skills started to matter a lot for the industrialization progress, differently from the first industrial revolution. That is why this more technical formal education starts to be introduced in primary school, really to support the process of industrialization. Indeed, we know that in this period, educational reforms throughout Europe were designed primarily to satisfy the increasing skill requirements in the process of industrialization. Now, what about the relationship between Catholicism and science? This 
um, was negative during this period of time, but it hasn't always been the case. Indeed, during the Enlightenment, so at the end of the 18th century, for instance, there were several scientists that were pressed and um, scientific process was also seen as a sort of fitting in the divine plan for like human societies and human beings. So what is the turning point here is the French Revolution. The French Revolution was extremely anti-clerical, but also, uh, also very much pro-science. So when the church came back in power into the country, tried to keep away whatever was related to the French Revolution. During the French Revolution, several priests were persecuted, killed, kicked out of the country. And so the church, once it came back, adopted this anti-scientific program to somehow uh, try to protect its identity and try to, try to like, keep away scientific technological progress. This was manifested in several aspects of people's life. For instance, the church was against vaccination, against birth control, against the use of electricity in the churches per se. There was this famous newspaper, La Mie du Clergé, that every time a new technology had to be introduced in society was discussing whether and which technology could be used effectively and instead those that had to be prohibited. For instance, women could not use bicycles or electric lamps could only be used in some part of the churches, but not, for instance, on the altar and several of these things. But of course, a lot of emphasis was also put on religious teaching and um, in a way trying to oppose the technical education. The reason here is, um, that of course with teaching, especially in primary schools, you can shape the mindset of the future generations. And indeed, what, what we read is that the church used schooling to rebuild the moral fiber of the lower classes and to restore the principle of stability and subordination in a way after the uh, events of the French Revolution. We are talking about primary schools in this paper. And there were four types of primary schools in France at the time. Schools could be secular, and secular schools could be public and private, but the vast majority of them was public. And schools could be Catholic, religious, and they could also be public and private. Now, the differences between these two types of schools, secular and Catholic, started to emerge to a certain extent in the 1850s. Secular teachers were like professionally trained. Um, they basically were trained in this famous Ecole Normale. And in the curriculum, you also had calculus, the metric system, and so on. In Catholic schools, the situation was very different. Catholic teachers were not trained. They simply had a let for obedience, which is basically uh, saying that anyone belonging to any religious order could qualify as a teacher. The curriculum of students was mostly based on religious text. There was hardly any emphasis on uh, reading and even less so on, sorry, on, uh, on writing and even less so on calculus. There was this so-called reading on the approach and reading we mean reading of religious text. Now these differences that started in the 1850s increased even more 
in the late 1860s and in the 1880s, where there was like a series of important educational reform by the French states. So on the one hand, the secular curriculum became much more professional, and there was also like some introduction of practical classes during primary schools and so on. At the same time, Catholic schools were being licensed. So basically, a lot of schools, public schools, uh, Catholic public schools had to become seculars, but they managed to survive. They became entirely private with hardly any change to the traditional curriculum. Let me show you this picture, which I think gives a bit of a sense of what I'm saying. So on the left-hand side, we have Catholic schools as a total. And, and then we have the share of public Catholic schools and the share of private Catholic schools, which is this one going up. So what do we see is that while the government tried to secularize public Catholic schools, indeed you see that this is going down, we have an increase in private education so that the total share and also actually the total number of Catholic schools stay pretty stable. What can explain this? This is explained by the fact that while public Catholic schools were being secularized, parents were really concerned, religious parents were really concerned about all this. And they very often prefer to pay fees to send their kids to private schools as long as their kids could be religiously educated. So this is really like a sort of response to the introduction of this technical education. And you can also think of it as a sort of backlash. In terms instead of um, secular schools, you see that there is most of them were, were public. And there is an increase in, uh, in secular school over time. But the situation is like pretty much stable. OK. Now, this is all in terms of historical background. Let me now tell you like a little bit about the data. I put together this uh, rich data set from primary and secondary sources. Let me just show you one picture. So for instance, this is the, um, the information on uh, schools, public, so public schools uh, for each canton, for each metropolitan area. And we have the number of schools, the number of students, whether these public schools were, were secular or religious and so on. And these data were basically digitized uh, from the French National Archives. Mm, I'm gonna better describe the data when we move to the analysis, but just to let you know, I put together data for both the cross-sectional analysis and for the panel analysis. And this includes indicator of religiosity, indicators of human capital and so education, and indicators of industrial and economic development. Now, first of all, I'm gonna show you that religiosity is persistent and I'm gonna tell you how I measure religiosity. So the main indicator of religiosity is the share of refractory clergy in 1791. This is the share of clergy that during the French Revolution decided to stay loyal to the Catholic Church and did not support the revolutionary government. What is important to know is that this was really a community level decision. In other words, it's not that the single priest really decided whether to 
um, stay with the government or um, stay loyal to the church, but it was a sort of consultation with the local community. Uh, and that is why historians argue that this is actually a measure of local religiosity. So the share of clergy that stay loyal to the Catholic Church during this period of time is a sort of a proxy for religiosity at the very local level. Now, um, if you don't trust this measure, if you don't believe this measure, I will use several other indicators. I'm just going to show you one here um, that are measuring different things and are strongly correlated with the share of refractory clergy and over different periods of time. So one of them, for instance, is church attendance in the 1950s. Here you see that the darker area are the more religious areas, both in 1791, measured at the share of priests loyal to the church. And on the right-hand side, we have the church attendance in the 1950s. What are these two maps saying? The two maps are saying that those places that were more religious in 1791 seem on average to be also more religious in the 1950s. And so this is suggesting that religiosity is quite persistent over time. At the same time, also through the other indicators of religiosity, which include, for instance, the share of readers to a very Catholic newspaper, La Croix and so on, it's somehow suggesting all this positive correlation between these different indicators of religiosity is suggesting that the share of refractory clergy is indeed a good proxy for religiosity of, at, the, at the local level because it's correlated with several other measures of religiosity over time. The reason why I prefer using the share of refractory clergy, is that it's measured before the outcome variables that we will see in a second, and it is available at a more disaggregated geographical level. Now, having said how I measure religiosity, religiosity seems to be persistent. The main indicator of religiosity that we use is also correlated with several other measures of religiosity over time. Let's study the relationship between religiosity and industrial economic development during the first industrial revolution, 1750, 1850, and during the second industrial revolution, which is approximately from 1870 to the First World War. Now, the analysis will be carried out first at the department level. Remember, there are approximately 90 departments in France, then at the canton level, and then we will move to a difference in difference analysis. Now, this is very simple. On the left-hand side, we have proxy for industrial and economic outcomes during the first and the second industrial revolution. And we regress this on the main measure of religiosity plus a set of control variables. Okay, these are the results. In column one and two, we are focusing on the period of the second industrial revolution. The dependent variables are the share of industrial workers in 1901 and the number of machineries, industrial machineries per capita in 1891. You see that the relationship between religiosity, the share of refractory clergy, and these two measures of industrial development during the period of the second industrial revolution is negative and significant. If we do a step back and we look at the period of the first industrial revolution, there is basically no really relationship there. So what this first very simple regression 
is saying is that it seems that the relationship between uh, development, industrial development and religiosity is negative during the first during the second industrial revolution, but no during the first industrial revolution. Now, of course, there could be several factors that are potentially confounding these results. And so that's why in a second step, which I'm not going to show you, I account for a set of control variables that include geographic factors, the reach of central institutions, proxies for human capital, as well as measure of economic development, early economic development at the beginning of the second industrial revolution. The results hold, so the negative relationship between religiosity and industrial development after 1870 is very stable, very strong, and, um, and it's somehow reassuring that accounting for all these factors, it, it, it's, still, it's still holding. Now, another concern is that there could be, however, um, unobserved department level factors. And so that's why now we move to a more disaggregated analysis where uh, rather than looking at departments, we look at cantons that are metropolitan areas. This will allow us to use the department fixed effect. And so it will account for all department level and observed characteristics. The dependent variable now is log households expenditure in 1901, during the period of the second industrial revolution. And we see that once again, there is a negative relationship between religiosity and households expenditure in, during the period of the second industrial revolution, even when accounting for department fixed effect. As a third step, we're gonna look at a difference in difference analysis. Now, the dependent variable is the share of industrial employment from 1866 to 1911. And this is available every five years over this period of time. So we regress the share of employment in industry on the interaction between religiosity and the post-1871 indicator, so post-second industrial revolution. Even this analysis is suggesting that religiosity starts to be negatively associated with industrial development only when the second industrial revolution started, but not before. Similarly, the same results are here. I'm just going to show you briefly for an event study analysis where we see that the negative relationship is actually starting to, to become stronger and stronger when the Industrial Revolution had been on its way for some time. So if by now, I hope I have convinced you that it's religiosity and no other confounding explanation that are explaining the relative relationship um, between like religiosity and economic development during the period of the second industrial revolution through this different specification that if you're happy, we can discuss more in details later. So if it's true that religiosity started to be negatively associated with development after 1870 but not before, what is the mechanism behind this? And here we move to the role of education and human capital accumulation. There are two main findings. The first one is that the more religious areas start to have, a, in a way, have a slower adoption of the technical curriculum that was being introduced and an increase in Catholic education. 
And the second result, which I'm going to show, is that religious education is negatively associated with industrial development approximately 10 to 15 years later. Let's start with the first one. So here, as dependent variable, we have either the share of Catholic schools in different periods of time in column one, three, or, and I want to focus your attention especially, the growth in the share of Catholic education. What we see in column four, seven, is that religiosity is explaining the growth in the share of Catholic education, especially in the period 1866-1901. That if you remember, it's exactly when the two types of uh, curricula, secular versus religious curriculum, became more and more different. So while the technical curriculum was being introduced in, uh, in schools by the state, in more religious area, you have an increase in religious education. And this is basically suggesting that once again, parents were particularly concerned about the religious education of their children. And it's in line with historical evidence saying that very often they were moving their children from secular schools that were free to Catholic schools where they very often had to pay a fee as long as they could be religiously educated. You can think of it also as a sort of religious backlash, right? A response to the introduction of this technical curriculum actually has this effect of increasing even more Catholic education in the more religious areas. And then let's look at the relationship between Catholic education and industrialization over time. The idea here is that if children are in primary school when they are between 5 and 15, they will enter the labor market about 10 years later when they are between 15 and 25. And so what we're going to do now is to use a panel setting where on the left-hand side, we have industrial employment during the period of the second industrial revolution. And we regress this on the share of Catholic schools 10 years earlier. We also account for several controls, and we are able to include department and time fixed effect, department and time fixed effect. So here I'm showing the results. It seems that the share of Catholic schools and students is negatively associated with industrial employment 10 years later, really with the idea that when these kids finish primary school and then they have to enter the labor market, if they had a more technical education, they are going to be more likely to find jobs in industry and vice versa. So it's really suggesting that the share of, of Catholic schools and students time T is negatively associated with industrial employment 10 years later. Now, in the paper, I performed several robustness checks. For instance, you may be worried that looking at minus 10 is cherry picking. Why don't we look at minus 5, at 0, minus 15, using different legs? I do all this in the paper. I don't have time to show you. But actually, the strongest relationship is really between industrial employment and Catholic schools 10, 15 years earlier 
always with these things of like finishing school and entering the labor market. In addition, what I also show in the paper is that the role of Catholic education seems to be particularly negative for employment in modern sectors, in innovative sectors, that are those sectors where the skill, the skill requirements was particularly high. So what we have seen so far, so far, the empirical analysis together with the historical record has suggested that religiosity is negatively associated with economic development during the second industrial revolution, but not before. And that Catholic education and its curriculum represents a key mechanism explaining this relationship. Remember, more religious areas, more Catholic schools, even more growth in Catholic schools and Catholic schools negatively associated with industrial development 10 years later. However, was schooling the only mechanism? As we said, the anti-scientific program of the church could have been manifested in several other aspects of people's life. Remember, in the introduction, I also said that church was against vaccination, against birth control. And indeed, what I'm going to show you in this table is that the more religious area also had a lower share of children that was vaccinated and higher fertility. So it would be naive to think that religiosity is affecting um, development only through education. There's also some other factors. However, when then in the paper, I try to study the role of this alternative mechanism for industrial development, I show that they are unlikely to account for my results and that education is the main, for sure is the main key mechanism explaining the negative relationship between religiosity and economic development. It's not the only one, probably not, but it's for sure a um, very important one. And then when we say, okay, then we, we believe this story, uh, it seems that schooling and the type of education affected industrialization, but through what, like why, how? And here, a lot of emphasis is put on the role of the curriculum. In the paper, I also showed that there were no differences in like summer attendance or in physical facilities or in other characteristics between Catholic and secular schools. So what is really important is really the role of the curriculum, what you study, the topics that you study at school. However, here we cannot think that the hours spent studying these topics automatically turned school children into skilled workers. However, the knowledge that these kids acquired at schools that was also involved in notion of geometry, some practical classes, metric system and so on, could have prepared them to better learn the extra knowledge required in the specific profession on the work follows. So applying these skills and learning even more so. So what I want to emphasize is a broad concept of this Catholic school curriculum that is very distinct from what children learned in secular schools without really saying, okay, you spent three hours studying math, so you will be automatically like a better workers on the work floor. It's this economically useful knowledge that they acquired that then prepare them to learn the extra knowledge required in their specific profession. And so finally, to conclude, what is this paper saying? We found a negative relationship between religiosity 
and economic development during the period of the second industrial revolution, education accumulation of human capital through the curriculum in primary schools seem to be the main mechanism. But does it mean that religiosity is always negatively associated with economic development? No, it's not what we are saying. For instance, during the first industrial revolution, we found no relationship between religiosity and economic growth, no relationship between religiosity and industrialization. So it really depends on whether religious norms are clashing with the type of useful knowledge that you need in every period of time to industrialize and grow. If the church or religious norms are in contrast, are opposing this useful knowledge in this specific case, this technical curriculum and all the scientific and technological milieu that was taking place during the end of the 19th century, well, then religion will likely hamper scientific and economic progress. It's not always the case. As I mentioned earlier, even during the Enlightenment, several clergymen, several clergymen were scientists and so on and so forth. So, um, okay, that's it for this paper. And what we found is basically exploiting variation in religiosity, the intensity of religion. We see when it is negatively associated with economic development and through which mechanisms, shedding light on the role of primary education. Now, in the last 15 minutes, let me tell you about a very different historical context and uh, still somehow analyzing this interplay between religiosity and silence. This is joint work with Enrico Berkes, Davide Coluccia and Gaia Dossi and myself. Davide and Gaia are, uh, two PhD students, amazing, and they will be on the job market next year. So if you're interested in uh, economic history, look at both of them. Um, so here we start from a different motivation. And we see that throughout history, the occurrence of adverse events has posed challenges to societies worldwide. For instance, the occurrence of pandemics, natural disasters, and so on. And that is why understanding how societies respond to these adverse events is extremely important. One strand of the literature suggests that people become more religious because religion provides a mechanism to cope with the resulting distress. This is the very famous religious coping hypothesis. There is some unexpected event, a pandemic, a natural disasters, and you turn to religious to cope with the distress caused by these adverse events. A very different strand of the literature is suggesting that societies turn to sciences and boost innovation efforts to mitigate and adapt to the consequences of these adverse events. What you're going to ask in this paper is, can these two reactions occur at the same time? So in other words, can societies become more religious and more innovative at the same time? And if so, how does this happen? And if you think of it, it's a sort of, and I mean, if they do become more religious and more innovative at the same time, it's sort of at odd with a lot of literature that we have mentioned showing the negative relationship between religiosity and science. So what we will do in this paper is to look at the United States during the period 1900, 1930, 
and focus on the impact of the great influenza pandemic that took place between 1918 and 1919. To measure religiosity, we are going to look at naming patterns of newborn babies. So basically, uh, how uh, you name your children is a proxy of the religiosity of parents. I'll tell you more about this. And to measure innovation, we're going to study the universe of patents granted in the United States and the share of people in STEM occupation. The analysis will be carried out in two steps. First, at the county level, looking at the evolution of religiosity and innovation over 30 years in approximately 1,200 US counties. And then at the individual level, to explain the mechanism behind this negative relationship, behind this aggregate finding. So what do we find? We find that in the short and in the medium run, counties that were hit harder by the pandemic become more religious. And this result is particularly strong for Catholic. This is also in line with an anthropological and psychological literature suggesting that Catholicism is somehow a better coping mechanism than Protestantism, for instance, when dealing with this distress coming from adversity. At the same time, the same counties become also more innovative. And especially we see that there is an increase in patents in pharmaceuticals. This also makes sense. It's a sort of necessity-driven innovation, right? There is this big disaster taking place and a lot of research and innovation is taking place in pharmaceuticals to somehow mitigate the consequences of this disaster. What is very interesting is that the relationship between religiosity and innovation that was negative in the period 1900-1917 before the pandemic turns to positive afterwards. And so this is somehow very interesting and somehow puzzling and at odd with the literature showing always this negative relationship between religiosity and innovation. So what we do next is we ask, how come? How is it this possible? And we look at within county, uh, we perform a within county analysis uncovering a heterogeneous response. In other words, what we try to do here is to ask whether is it the same individuals becoming more religious and more innovative, or is it different people in society reacting in different ways to the same shock? What we find is actually evidence for the second mechanism. Indeed, individuals from more religious background further tune to religion, and those from less religious background turn to sciences. So you see, depending on the religious background, you have different responses to the same shock. Individuals in STEM occupations that were already less religious than the rest of the population to start with, become even less religious than the rest of society. And finally, as a whole, we observe a polarization of religiosity, a polarization of religious beliefs, suggesting that people became even more distant than they were initially. So, Somehow, this apparent coevolution between religiosity and innovation, the same counties becoming more religious and more innovative at the same time, is explained by the fact that within society, however, different individuals react in opposite way to the same shock. And so somehow, shedding light on an even more negative relationship between religiosity and science within society. So um, 
I'll give you a bit of details on the historical background, talk about the data very briefly, and then show you a couple of results. Now, the great influenza pandemic killed around 50 million people worldwide. And in the United States, one fourth of the US population was infected. And in approximately two years, 0.7% of the population died. And compared to COVID, during COVID, 0.3% of the US population died uh, until March 2022. What about the pandemic religiosity? So it seems that spiritualism gained momentum and some denomination such as the Catholics, saw the pandemic as a manifestation of divine anger and advocating the need for prayers in response to this shock. When we look at the relationship between the pandemic and innovation from a historical perspective, unfortunately, people 100 years ago uh, were not as lucky as we have been. They didn't find a vaccination. They didn't find a cure. But however, what is very important is that the pandemic triggered an interest in medical science and affected the development of medical sciences in the in the future years. We have the birth of antibiotics, the antibiotics, the birth of biology right after the, the great influence pandemic. So this is really like a brief overview of the historical background. Let me now tell you which data we need. So we need basically three main sources of data. The first is data on the impact of the pandemic, then information on religiosity and information on innovation. We compute the, we measure the impact of the influenza pandemic uh, using um, data from the mortality statistics. This covers 60% of the US population. And our measure will be uh, basically the number of deaths during the pandemic years over the number of deaths in the three preceding years. Now, if we look at the, UNI, at the United States, this is how excess mortality looks like. The darker area, the strongest impact of the pandemic. And you see that even within state, there is quite some heterogeneity. Remember that we cover approximately 60% of the US population. Now, when measuring religiosity, there is like a main challenge and it's to find high frequency data. So what we do is we come up with a new metric based on naming patterns of newborn babies with the idea that the, the name given to babies is somehow telling us something about the religiosity of parents. This is in line with other papers in economics that have looked at names to study, for instance, individualism or socioeconomic background or even religiosity. What's novel about our approach is that we are going to construct a data-driven measure of religiosity. Now, in particular, we're going to use two main sources of data to attribute a score, a religiosity score, to each name. We start with the census of religious affiliations that was collected in 1906 and 1916. In here, we compute the basically share of people affiliated to any religious denomination. Think of it as a sort of church membership. This information is available at the decade level. Then we move to the full count US census. In here, we basically use information on first names of babies by birth cohort. In other words, what we ask is how many Maras were born this year in the United States. Then 
we estimate this equation, where on the left-hand side, we have the share of affiliated available in 1906 and in 1916, and we regress this on our basically named frequency which is capturing all newborn babies born during the 10 preceding years. I'm gonna make it short here, but we are gonna basically estimate a delta hat that is telling us about how religious a certain name is, how, by telling us which are the names given in those counties that are becoming more religious. We'll also estimate this without the county fixed effect. And so we're going to see what are the names given in those counties that are more religious. And thanks to basically this estimation, we are basically going to construct a measure of religiosity at the individual and the county level. To measure innovation is much easier. We're going to use the universe of patents and also um, basically as a broader proxy of scientific orientation, we're going to look at individuals in, in STEM occupation. Uh, the, empirical uh, the empirical strategy will be basically very simple. On the left-hand side, we have either religiosity of innovation, and it's uh, an event study where we regress uh, our outcome variables on time, county fixed effect, and then the interaction between biennial windows, because the flu took place over the period 1918-1919. So we're going to look at biennial windows and our proxy for the impact of the, of, the, of the pandemic. What do we find? So first results, counties that were hit harder by the pandemic become more religious over time. If I'm gonna show you the results by religious confession, this seems to be stronger for Catholicism. We validate our measure of religiosity in several different ways. If you don't believe the main indicator of religious names, we also use saint and biblical names. And we show that the correlation between our proxy for religiosity, that is telling us which are the names given in counties that are becoming more religious. And the standard measure of religious names, saint and biblical names are pretty much are very much correlated to one another. So this is very reassuring for us. We also use other proxy for religiosity, account for migration, account for World War I deaths, and perform several other robustness checks. In a second step, we look at what happened in terms of innovation. And we find that counties hit harder by the pandemic become more innovative. And this is particularly strong for innovation in pharmaceutical. Here we are looking at patents, and this is particularly strong for patents in pharmaceuticals. Uh, in this table, indeed, you can see that we have simple diff in diff, where we have patents in pharmaceutical and in other sectors, and the relationship seems to be driven, this positive increase seems to be driven by patents in pharmaceuticals. Finally, we perform a lot of robustness checks looking at innovation. We use our alternative proxy for scientific progress that is the share of people in STEM occupation. But what is interesting is that the relationship between innovation and religiosity is negative in the period before the pandemic on the left-hand side in 1900, 1917, and becomes positive afterwards in the period 1918, 1930. This is also suggestive evidence, and in the paper we have more uh, systematic evidence, that it's exactly the same counties 
that are becoming more religious and more innovative. And so finally we ask, how is it this possible? Is it that the same individual are becoming more religious and more innovative or different people in societies reacted in opposite way? We perform an individual level analysis and uh, we basically, once again, I'm just gonna list very briefly the findings. We show that individuals coming from high religious background are becoming more religious, while those coming from less religious background are more likely to choose a STEM occupation as a proxy for, um, for scientific orientation. At the same time, there is an increase in distance in religiosity between STEM people and the rest of the population. And we find a polarization of beliefs within society. So in a way, what the individual level analysis is suggesting is that religion and science appear to be very different reaction to exactly the same shock. And as a result, society become more polarized than it was at the beginning. So to conclude, this individual level analysis is somehow reconciling the aggregate finding about the positive relationship between uh, religiosity and science with the literature that instead is suggesting a negative relationship between the two of them. And these patterns appear also in line with the response of society to COVID-19. We are analyzing how um, society become more polarized under one dimension, religiosity, but uh, could also have broader implication for the reaction of societies uh, to, to pandemic and to shocks more broadly. So um, I think I'm just on time. What I try to show you is that throughout history and in the different empirical exercises, um, there is a complex relationship between religiosity and science. In the first paper about 19th century France, we actually studied the impact of religiosity on technological and economic progress and found that this relationship becomes negative when religions hampers the accumulation of economically useful knowledge, the accumulation of human capital. One of the main mechanisms is schooling and education, and in particular, the context of the curriculum. In the second paper, I was very fast on this. We studied how a third factor, a pandemic, may affect the evolution of religiosity and science. What we showed is that actually the same counties, the same places are becoming more religious and more innovative at the same time. Well, when we dig deeper into this, we actually find that society becomes more polarized with some individuals opting for religious to cope with the shock and other preferring scientific occupation or patenting more in pharmaceutical and turning to science to react to exactly the same shock. So there is still a lot to be said, but I will be happy to answer your questions if you have any and to talk more about this complex relationship between religiosity and scientific progress. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was uh, that was really fascinating and, and wonderful to hear. Um, you have a few questions, as you can imagine. Um, I think you had, uh, the audience was uh, reacting very, very positively throughout that. Um, and I, I turned back and there were suddenly more questions. Um, so we've got lots of things that people want to ask you about. And obviously it's, it's a terrific shame that we 
are not with you in person to ask these in a more a more direct manner, and I will have to voice um, a few different um, people. I will pretend to be them at times. I probably, but can I can I ask you a, a, something myself first? And as I was struck, you know, you called this a complex relationship, and you were really careful about how you present the relationship between Catholicism and science, and very kind of you know, very clear at post-French revolution, it's about this kind of moment of norms in opposition. Um, but you also mentioned, and we know there are kind of several people who are arguing there's a more fundamental opposition out there, some of the kind of work you cite about um, how science and belief interact. Um, and I wondered, I mean, given particularly, I was quite struck by your second paper, how in the end that comes down with individual, uh, you know, the scientist, the science-oriented become more scientific, the religious become more religious. I want to, I mean, is this as complex as you, as, how complex is it? I mean, do you think that there is a more general statement about an opposition, maybe from the 19th century onwards, or are you kind of really hesitant about this? I say it's in part because the very first question um, that was asked, it was put up very quickly, was, um, do you think that the Islamic world can achieve a new golden age as they did in before, you know, it's a kind of classic question, right? It's kind of what is what is possible? Is is there a kind of tension here? Because you were you were very careful, but then your papers seem to kind of align a little bit, and I I I just wondered if we could push you a little bit on that. Okay, thank you. These are very difficult questions, and <laughs> um, let me say, like, let me give the broad interpretation that is what I mentioned in the paper, and that's. I, I like to say complex also because going back to the question about the Islamic world, I think that there could be moments in which religion allows scientific progress to happen. It doesn't necessarily have to be always negative. Now, if we go back in history, we see that most of the cases, as you were saying, Patrick, in most of the cases, religion, different religious affiliation in different moments of time are somehow hostile to technological and scientific progress. But this is not always and absolutely the case, right? Um, the example of the Enlightenment is very fascinating for me because uh, even the Jesuits, for instance, they were great scientists. They were making progresses in physics, chemistry. And I could provide several examples of this. So I think that, and that's also what some historians of religion have been arguing, that this negative relationship between religion and science goes the way they say, goes beyond their intrinsic natures. It's not necessary that religion and science per se are negatively associated, even though this has, always, this has very often been the case. Uh, with the Inquisition, with then again in the 19th century. If we look at some churches, even today in the US, we see a strong opposition towards several patterns like Roland Benabou, David Etikin, and Andrea Vindini also provide several examples of this. So to conclude, even if historical anecdotes and historical settings have told us that in several cases, likely in most of the cases, different churches throughout time have opposed 
technological and scientific program. This doesn't have necessary to be the case. There are also examples in which the two were aligned. And I'm citing a few historians that also say that really goes beyond the intrinsic nature of the two. And hopefully, mm. maybe there will be also some revival of the golden age in the Islamic world at some point. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think we could talk endlessly on this. I think it's it's absolutely fascinating about particularly the way that you you bring out the changing relationship with the the second industrial revolution and whether that then might be something that with a with a kind of more industrial age these problems. Yeah, and if you compare what was like taking during the Enlightenment compared to like a hundred years later, it seems like a very different church in how it's dealing with scientific progress. During yeah. the Enlightenment, there was it was even considered that scientific progress was part of a divine plan. A hundred years later, that was totally prohibited. Now, I, I just realized I, I could, I, I should, I should throw a couple of the kind of like tougher questions at you um, from colleagues, just, just, just um, to, just to um, make you feel like you've been at home. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. So, um, just uh, one question, I think this um, came in from um, Herb Backer, who's one of, the, um, one of my colleagues in the department. And I think... He's very polite too. He says, I'm probably misunderstanding something. Um, but can you explain the mechanism by which this, this 10 years of this, these few years of Catholic schooling can affect the late industrial labor force share? This is in relation to the first paper significantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because of the difference between the, the small flow of school students and the stock of workers, I think is the kind of underlying issue, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very important question. And I'm happy that you asked because I can clarify a few historical details as well. So back then, I'm looking at primary education. Back then, primary education was compulsory in France. So we are talking not about the skills of the engineers, entrepreneurs, scientists that we know as being important, especially during the first industrial revolution, but we're talking about the skills of the entire workforce, right? And so we're talking about kids that would finish primary schools and would just enter the labor market. A very tiny minority of them would keep studying. So what we're trying to understand is really um, somehow the training that these skills, that these future workers had during their primary education. Something that was also taking place in this period is, uh, is basically the abandonment of uh, Trainship in the guilds and apprenticeships, and emphasis on formal education. The reason is that technology was becoming more complex. So you also needed some notion of the metric system geometry to operate this more complex machinery. So I'm looking at 10 years to start with. That's just a very initial starting point. Then I also look at five years, 15 years, and I also do something very different. So I'm trying to show if industrial employment is predicting the type of education later on, because you can also have a problem of reverse causality here, and they find nothing. So 
through all these different pieces of evidence, historically, and all these different exercises, let me to say and to argue that it's actually the strongest effect from the type of education to the industrialization progress occurs about 10, 15 years later. And this is in line with the argument that these kids that are gonna be like regular blue collar workers uh, when they finish schools are getting some training, finishing school, entering the labor market and being employed in industry, especially a result that I haven't shown in those sectors that are more innovative, in those sectors that have a higher skill requirements. And so ruling out also reverse causality and analyzing the different lags, let mm. me say that this is basically the most plausible mechanism of skill acquisition and then operating in the in the labor market. Yeah, yeah so in, in some ways, in answer to this question, kind of the short answer, in almost that kind of like different elements become, sorry, that the, you're, you're only, you're looking at the stock at one moment flow into the stock at one moment, but actually this is a much wider set of, um, it's kind of holds across the board. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, uh... in, the, in the analysis, there is a panel analysis. So we are looking basically at changes in education and changing in employment. No, that, that's that's great. Um, let me um, let me bring in a question from uh, Felix Schaff, who you may know, I think um, he's one of our, 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 a recent PhD student who's currently a postdoc at the EUI in Florence. Um, and, Felix asks, well, okay, you're telling us this kind of negative story um, about how Catholicism discourages technical schooling, is bad for human capital and growth and so on. But I think you'd accept this. Religions are complex. Um, and they also influence things like social welfare, public health. Do you have any thoughts about the way that religiosity may have done good things um, for human capital and growth um, in this period? I mean, how, what, about the, what about the other channels that might be there? Okay, so on the uh, negative side first, as I show religion is not negatively affecting, uh, is not only affecting education, but we also saw that there were like a lower share of kids being vaccinated, higher fertility, just to like in this line, it's affecting a lot of aspects in uh, of human life. On the positive side, I don't show this in my paper, but there is some other work showing that religious people, for instance, have more trust and probably more social capital. And so if trust and social capital are attitudes conducive to economic growth, this is a paper by uh, Guiso, Sapienza and Zingales, uh, then, you know, of course, as the complexity that religion and different denominations, confessions entails, they may affect also social capital and probably, you know, trust among individuals and also have uh, some positive effects on development if this is especially based on trust. In my period, the role of human capital was extremely important. It's the moment in which you see investment, like massive investment of state in technical curriculum, not only in France, this was true also in, in Prussia, for instance. And so, somehow hampering this leads to the negative effect that we see. But of course, social capital trust are typically associated with religion and religiosity. Thank you. I, I think that I think this is kind of like an interesting kind of, we could talk endlessly about this, couldn't we? Um, and 
I think it kind of like really is a challenging kind of opens all kinds of areas. And I think for the kind of like what you were saying there is fabulous. I apologize. I seem to be having a, a series of alerts which I can't control my computer. <laughs> Never mind. Um, let me move on because there's a number of more questions that I think people want to hear answers to. Um, and one from Mohamed Saleh, who I think you know is an associate professor in the department. Um, he thanks you obviously for the fascinating talk. Um, and his first question is, is what about the role of Jesuits? You know, Jesuits are famous for the kind of counter-reformation uh, program of education, emphasizing useful knowledge. So why weren't they so prominent during the second IR? I think that the answer to that might be quite short. Um, and um, second, in many historical contexts, the producers of scientific knowledge were different from those that produce religious dogma. So Islamic science is, is an example of this. Um, so he's kind of saying that religiosity, conditional on affiliation, and science are somewhat independently produced, right? And so the outcome is a result of political conflict between these players. And I guess that might be something that you feel aligns in some ways with the argument that you put forward here. Yeah. So a lot of, uh, thanks, Mohammed, for the question. That's extremely important. So a lot of Mohammed's question actually can be answered by the distinction between average and upper tier human capital. Jesuits were extremely important. I think they kept making progresses, but they were not very much involved in primary education. They were mostly involved in secondary schools. There was the famous Jesuit college that were training an upper tail of scientists, but there were like less than 30 Jesuit college in, in the country. So here instead, what we're looking at, it's a different type of education that the school is involved in too, and that's primary education. Jesuits were not very much involved in that. We are talking about nuns and priests spread throughout the country, uh, belonging to any religious order and with like Catholic education, talking to the masses. So that's the first thing. And the second question uh, was about the distinction of who's producing. Uh, um... I think it's about, I mean, I think he's kind of suggesting a way of thinking about this, really, about whether, um, because who's, the people who are producing religious ideas and scientific ideas are different. I think it's a starting point. And so religiosity, he's suggesting in science, are perhaps independently produced. Um, and the outcome um, is a result of political conflict between the religious and the scientific producers. Um, I think I'm not sure I'm voicing his question very well at this point, which reflects where we are in the day. But you're you're in your afternoon, so you might be able to seize the seize the idea and. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, second, in many historical context, producer of scientific knowledge were different from that producing secondary religious dogma. Yes, a case in point is the cause in Islamic science, which is in the it includes the religious affiliation political and the producers of science. So it seems to me that religiosity, conditionally on affiliation and science, are somewhat independently produced by different players, and that the outcome is the result of political conflict between these players. Yes, Mohammed, that's true. And indeed, like in the first paper of religiosity, I'm not really looking at who's producing science, but once this stock of machinery technology is there, it's really who is using it, right? And how good this use is and how then it fosters industrial and the economic development, right? Still, um, this also, I think, goes, uh, it's in line also with the paper of Benabou and co-authors that are looking at the interaction between scientists, religious entities, they introduce the state as well as a sort of like uh, 
actor to then put equilibrium between the two. Um, this set, uh, it's true, it, be, it very often are like different people. So it could also be in the case of Jesuits, that is the same actor producing religiosity and science. In any case, if you are in an environment that is very hostile to sciences, and for instance, somehow hampering sciences already in like primary education, it's harder, or, or even like having little audience for uh, the scientific discovery, it's gonna be harder than over time to produce more and more scientists. Um, of course, there is typically different actors, but very often, you know, when they clash, then it's either one or the other prevailing. Yes, but I agree. Okay, and um, we've got a few more questions. I'd like to give a, a chance to, to, to one from uh, Matty, um, oh, so Nick Fitzhenry, who's writing under the, uh, someone else's identity. So Nick is one of our PhD students who actually comes to us from South Africa. And he's really interested in um, the research on um, the impact of influenza and asks, do we see similar effects? You mentioned this right at the end of that section about um, how COVID affects religiosity. Um, so what are the parallels between the kind of religiosity yeah. reaction there um, and maybe you can just tell us a little bit more about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the fact of like peoples and societies turning to religion when hit by negative adverse events is not new. It's been like the case since plagues of 600 years ago. And surprisingly enough, or not surprisingly enough, it's also been the case of like 2020 with COVID. There's been like different surveys carried out, but there is also like one paper of Janet Benson published in GIBO, and she's basically finding that when hit by COVID, people were looking more for prayers, even like a couple of years ago as a sort of like, revival of religiosity. In other works, she looks at the effect of earthquakes, modern earthquakes on religiosity as well. So it seems that this attitude of finding refuge and comfort in religion when having something that is happening beyond your control, which from a more personal and individual sphere could also be hit by a terrible disease or finding out that you have an uncurable disease or cancer, whatever, seems that when this event, being it a natural disaster, a pandemic, or a personal adverse experience, leads to religion very often as a solution. It's been like that for millennia, and it still is today. And there is also empirical evidence about COVID. The main measure that she uses is really like Google searches for prayers uh, that seem to have increased when the pandemic hit. Mm. But I, I suppose one of the points of the paper that you, you just summarized for us was this polarization. Yes. You know, um, and that I thought was absolutely fascinating. I think it might be prompting Nick's question, right? The, I, the kind of separation between the two reactions. So, I mean, that you, you kind of like put that nice stalking horse that, well, maybe we're both becoming more religious and more scientific, and then you shoot it down and show us that it's different people going in different ways. Exactly. Um, do, we, do we have a sense that that is, is still the case, that we're still making a choice in some senses, not making a choice, but perhaps we are conditioned into particular kind of schools of response by our backgrounds, by our prior expectations, by our beliefs that we do. I don't have empirical evidence on like today, but uh, as a sort of like 
feeling or like the questions. This is a bit where we I don't think, have to. Yeah. I think that's also the case. We can see that like several people in societies have reacted in different ways. Like many of us have put a lot of hope in science and vaccination. And that's as soon as, soon as vaccinations were available. That was the first thing we wanted to do. And maybe like thank science for all the progresses that have been made in so few years. Other people have reacted in very opposite way, even being hostile to vaccination scientific progress more broadly. Other people have turned to religion. So this is also somehow in line with the some literature in psychology that is saying that you even reinforce your initial viewpoints when hit by something that is unpredictable. So you even reinforce your own uh, yeah, viewpoints and beliefs. And if you typically believe in science, you are going to probably put a lot of trust of science as um, helping you out and vice versa. If you have other beliefs, you're going to probably like if you are very religious, you're going to ask God to help you to go through these years and help society. So the polarization results and the fact that many people reacted in different ways and probably became even more distant than they were initially. I don't have empirical evidence, but I would say that it's very it's very likely that something similar happened with COVID just by observing a few different results, reading the newspapers, observing societies around us. I think that's very plausible. I think that's really interesting. I mean, I think actually it brings me on to the kind of the, one of the next points that, that Lee Gardner and other professors in the department just asked, which is, you know, religious participation is declining over time, right? So this would be changing the selection of people into religion. And I wonder then kind of how does this play out, right? The kind of the, the, the point at which the divide between the religious and the secular will have changed, and obviously varies greatly between countries, but will also be changing within countries over time. And does that kind of, do you feel that that's got something, a point that plays into this story? Uh, I think it does. It's true that religious participation is declining over time. Still, even today, 86% of the population is religious. So, of course, with like huge variation among countries, with some developing countries having 99% of the population that is religion and other countries that this share is much lower. Of course, also within societies, we have a lot of variation with some people still attending uh, like services regularly and belonging to churches and religious affiliations and other going more far apart. And of course, the, relation, the reaction in terms of polarization and whether you choose religion or science may be also affected by this secularization that is in some countries taking place. Of course, if you start with an extremely secular country and uh, where a lot of the population is agnostic or atheist, it's harder than people are gonna to turn to religion and become more religious rather than if you start from already religious societies where becoming more religious is probably the most continuous way to react. So of course that also plays an important role, I believe, um, in terms of who and how people react and where society is gonna go. Mm. I mean, I think it plays out kind of really interesting into kind of how we think about intensity at that point, doesn't it? And the kinds of... Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Because what we observe in the paper, as I mentioned at the beginning here, both papers are about the intensity of religion. And so we see that people become more religious. Of course, if you start from a very secular society, you will need a conversion first. And then, and that's of course another step. 
Yeah, and that would be that would be a, a very different kind of uh, story, I'm yeah. sure. Um, we are essentially at time um, here. Um, we've worked you hard. We've heard an extraordinary um, account of some of the the work that you you you've been doing recently. You're still doing now, um, and it's been a tremendously insightful um, opportunity to see. I think really well, all the reasons why we invited you to be the Epstein lecturer this year have been entirely kind of visible in the, the talk. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, and I think we're incredibly grateful for you taking the time to join us here today. Join us virtually, unfortunately, but hopefully in a couple of years in the department in person, at least, so we can uh, thank you properly. Um, so let me close the lecture here simply by saying thank you once again um, Mara Scriturini for being our Epstein lecturer this year. Um, and thank you for an absolutely fascinating lecture. lecture. So, Thank you, Patrick. And thank you everybody for attending and for the, the great questions. And I look forward to visiting LSE and ideally meet all of you in person. That would be lovely. Thank you so much, everyone. And uh, you. see you next year. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.